I need to lay out some things in regards to Colossians just a little bit to kind of set the scene before we read it. There are two books, again, that Paul writes, two of the 13 letters he writes. There are two letters he writes, two churches he has not planted. Can you tell me what those two churches are? Excellent. And Colossians, excellent job. Well done. Two churches. Now, we don't even know who planted the church in Rome. Um, We could kind of piece together some things, like there were some people there from Rome in Acts chapter 2. Uh, But Paul doesn't necessarily attribute the church to a specific individual, where Colossians he does. Now, Colossians, there is this triangle of churches, churches, I'm sorry, triangle of cities that surround a river in the Lycus Valley, uh, the Meander. And the three different churches are really, I'm sorry, I got to stop saying, the three different cities are uh, a destination as a triangle, if you will. There is Hierapolis. There is Laodicea, and there is Colossae. Each of those has a specific person. It starts with Hierapolis. Hierapolis, by the way, uh, there are hot springs there, natural sulfur hot springs. So if you think about it, let's just put it into kind of contemporary mindset. Hierapolis is, in essence, the spa. Now, not everybody can afford to go to the spa. So there's a fairly wealthy group of people that make their way over to Hierapolis. So Hierapolis is the place where you would go to, uh, to basically go and, and receive your, your treatments. Then you have Laodicea. Laodicea, in essence, was the bank. That's where you kind of went in exchange for the local currencies. So they were the money. So let me ask you, Deborah, who I'm just out of nowhere, if there was a place that had a spa, and then there was a place where you could get a lot of money, what's left? What do you need? Anyone want to offer? What a, okay. Pizza. <laughs> you can tell where everyone is. You need a mall. You need a place to shop. I mean, you've got people with that they've gotten money now. They've gotten their treatments, and that's what Colossae is. Colossae was the place for the spa, Was the place for to shop in essence. It was the market. Now, uh, Colossae was a place, by the way, that uh, because it becomes that it becomes a melting point of a lot of different cultures because there's a lot of different things that are coming to sell their wares. And of course, when you're bringing in stuff from all over the world, you have then different cultures represented through all those kind of things. The kind of thing like, of course, that's a lot like London in that sense. So, I mean, Oxford Street, really, there's two, there's two different places if you think about it. There's the touristy places to shop, and then there's the place where people would shop that aren't necessarily as touristy. Touristy places are all going to be like, but interestingly enough, everyone's selling I Love London stuff, and I don't think I've ever actually met a British guy selling that kind of stuff, for what it's worth. Uh, and then there's the place where you can kind of go and you just kind of know like every culture is represented kind of in that area. Well, that's kind of the idea of this. Now, Paul is writing to a church, and can I say in the simplest sense, he is very aware of two specific things. First of all, I want to make sure, now, now I, I trust Epaphras, he's the one who's told me about you guys, but I want to make sure that if we're going to have fellowship, Paul speaking, that we are on the same level about who Jesus is. Or I might even say specifically what Jesus is. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page, that we have the same Jesus. Does that make sense? And then secondly, I want to challenge you to keep the faith in that Jesus. Now, this book more than any other will be the book that shows, and let me just say it this way. Hugo and Deborah are going from one place to another in Hyde Park. They want to go and visit. They're going to go see a show, Phil Collins or whatever the case is, before he's in a wheelchair. And uh, as they're on their way, though, 
they're gonna be, they're gonna see all of these like places where you can waste your money throwing balls at you know things to try to knock things down. All these kind of carnival games. And of course, every one of them is going to be calling out to them. And occasionally, maybe they're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. That's kind of interesting. But they know they have a place. They have to meet Daniel at the end of it all. Daniel at 7 p.m., they want to make sure they get there. They're, they have an ample amount of time. So at first, they can kind of meander. They get past all of those. Then they get to the shop stalls. And Deborah's like, oh, look at that. And then there's like, Bass, that's the food stalls. And then Hugo's like, well, we're gone. You know, let's hope we make it by 7. And then there's all these people calling out to you on the sides where you know what you need to do is go straight to this to where you're going to meet Daniel. Does that make sense? Well, Paul sees that that's the way that an agora is. Agora is a place where there would be these markets. And people, and if you've ever been to a lot of these kind of, especially like in the Arab market, they are very aggressive in getting your attention. They, and you know that's going to be the case in a lot of street places. I mean, even in place you go to a place like uh, Woolwich, and it's like, you know, everything's a song. It's like, buy your bananas. Buy your bananas, you know, and it's like it, they just because they really want you to come to their stall because there's 15 people selling the same thing. So you're going to go with the guy with the song. This is the reason I say that is Paul's looking at a group of people he doesn't know personally, though he has a list we see in chapter four. The majority of it is him saying hi. And there's a really key point that I want to point out in chapter four. But what Paul says is the way that that happens. First of all, you want to make sure you have your destination clear. That's Jesus. I want to make sure that that's clear. But then I want you to recognize that as you're seeking to walk with Jesus, there are going to be an endless amount of people trying to pull you to their stall and divert you. They're not trying to flat out stop you. They're not going to go, I don't believe your thing. What they're going to try to do is they're going to try to steer you just the way enough so you really never make it to your destination. As a matter of fact, there's going to be a really fun word. He, has, he uses two different words for the word cheat in this and we'll bring those out here in a moment so the when paul's writing this he's writing this with this kind of purpose in mind that what the idea of it is is if you will get yourself clear on where you're going to go and keep the faith don't allow somebody to steer you by something that's like well it's still in the way it's still in the root if you will but even if it's still in the root the moment it turns you away you're no longer heading there and that's what paul is saying so let's dig into it shall we and there's so much more we could develop, but for clarity, I think that's a good start. Here we go. And I'll stop us here and there on the way. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the, by the third second or third chapter, we'll all start going in the round. I just want to start, though. Kind of get us rolling. We give thanks to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard, notice heard, because he hasn't seen it personally, of your faith in Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. And I have to stop here because I want you to recognize something Paul is constantly pointing out that we could easily miss. When Paul, especially for Rome and for Colossae, because he doesn't have a personal experience with the church, what do you look for? What do you look for in a church to go, is this church full on? Is this church right? Well, interestingly enough, Paul always seems to note the same thing. So I'm going to give you guys some verses quick to read, if you will. So get out your Bibles. And we'll start with this. Marcion, John 13, 35. 
Sooty. So it's John. Oh yeah. We'll go. So I got one right there for you. So John, John thirteen thirty five, Suti, Ephesians one fifteen, Anna, First Thessalonians one three, Maureen, Second Thessalonians one three, Suzuki, Philemon one five. Now I know you've just gotten off a plane, so I could have done Philemon three. There's only one chapter in Philemon just to see, but I wouldn't do that. So Philemon one five, Deborah. 2 Corinthians 8, 7. Ugo. Galatians 5, 6. Daniel. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6. Bruno. 1 Timothy 1, 5. And then I'll take, the, I'll take one more, and that'll be 2 Timothy 1, 13. Listen to, if you can find out, Paul seems to have a two-point criteria when he's looking at a church to see if he's confident in them. Okay, it starts, by the way, from believing what Jesus said in John 13.35, which Marcy is going to read. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Ephesians 1.15 Therefore... I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. Okay, First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.3 Remember, without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Second Thessalonians 1.3 1, 3. Okay. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards toward each other. Beautiful. Philemon 1.5 Hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. What do they all seem to have in common? <clears throat> yes, and one other thing. Faith. faith. Excellent. He looks and he goes, I see this. I see your trust in Jesus. And I see your love for whom? Each other, excellent, for one another. Isn't that what Jesus said? They'll know that you're my students by the way you love each other, by the fact that you do love each other. Isn't it interesting? That is not normally something we look at when we go to a church to see whether we see the Spirit of the Lord at work. We'd rather see gifts, because after all, that's, that's, that's pretty cool and supernatural. Let's be honest. Nobody loves agape love naturally selflessly without actually putting a price tag on it, without keeping score, that is actually, to my opinion, more supernatural and harder to fake than it would be to kind of pull out a smoke and mirror show on someone. And Paul knows that. He looks and he's like, you know, I hear that these guys trust each other. Imagine if Paul were to say, someone came and said, Hey, there's this church in London. Now, look, at there's, it isn't like there's 3,000 people. There's a group of people sitting in a room opening up a book you read. And they're a church. And I would see Paul going, okay, so they have a faith for They have a faith in Jesus. Oh, they trust Jesus. How do they treat each other? I guarantee that would be Paul's next question. Do they love each other? 
Because if he doesn't see that, I don't see Paul writing letters to churches that aren't like that. Except in the case of rebuke, for instance, with the Galatians, he doesn't say that to the Galatians. And I think that's an interesting thing. He will tell them, he'll, tell, he'll challenge them that they need to keep going, though. For instance, 2 Corinthians 8, 7. Here's his exhortations in that area. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in the grace also. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Do you get that? Notice it wasn't like he said, you know, I, boy, that's the one church Paul seems to have a doubt of their salvation. And nowhere does he say, boy, do I see you guys love each other. And I just think that's interesting. He goes, you know what really matters? Because what really matters is you exercise your trust in God by the way you love each other. Isn't that weird to think? The way I could demonstrate how much I trust Jesus is how I love you guys. Isn't that a weird thought? Okay, take me beyond that then. First Thessalonians 3.6 but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you Paul was concerned Timothy comes back and he says you know what I see I see them trust God and love each other alright <clears throat> First Timothy 1.5 the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart for, from a good conscience and from sincere faith. Do you notice it again? A sincere faith, a good conscience, will produce love from a pure heart. And that's the intent of the, of the commandment in the first place. Paul says in 2 Timothy, as he's about to pass off the scene to Timothy in one thirteen, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Now that's pretty simple, isn't it? Could you imagine if this week I pri- I, I'm priming the motor here for what we'll be praying on Saturday. We pray those two things. God, let me exercise my trust in you by loving the saints this week. Well, why? I'd rather tell you now so we could be praying ahead of time for the opportunities that will be between them. It's a cool place to start, isn't it? And it's so simple. Well, this is still in Paul's hello, but I really had to at least develop that first. Now, he says, since we heard of your love, back in Colossians now 1, verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God and truth, as you also heard from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, so we know who planted the church, who was a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who has declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard it, and again, notice, Paul's like, there was, you know, there was a time you guys were actually a church and you were saved and loving each other. I didn't even know you existed. But I did hear it. You know what happened when I did? I do not cease to pray for you and ask that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This is Paul's prayer. He goes, wow, there's a church out there that's starting. Here's my prayer. God, let them literally be overflowing with a clear knowledge of your will. And not only a clear knowledge of your will, 
but that it would be in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And you know what would happen if that was the case with us? He tells us the fruit of that. That you'd walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of His Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now let me say this. If we were filled in such a way, we'd have a worthy walk, we'd have a pleasing life, we'd have fruitful work, we'd be growing in our knowledge, we'd be patient and joyful in our strength, and we would be thankful in our hearts. That's what he tells us would happen if we really grabbed a hold of that. Now, Let's make sure we all have the same God, shall we? Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. And if you kind of has the paper or whatever, underline or circle these words. He's the image of the invisible God. Next, the firstborn is the next term. Over all creation. By him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities and powers. All things were created. Which means he's creator. Through him... And for him, and he is before, that's the next thing, all things, and in him all things consist. tells us he is the head of the body, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Paul says, let's make sure we have the same guy. First of all, he is the image. This is a Greek word we actually we would recognize. The word is icon. An icon in the simplest sense to be honest, one of the best examples of that is probably what, like, for instance, I know that Bruno has to deal with this, but when we deal with computer things, when you look, there is an icon that tells you this represents an entire program. And you know, you see it's usually an image of some sort, and you know if I tap onto that, I'm now going to be able to access the entire program that comes with it. But they can't just say, here's all the things it does, because how do you fit that on your screen? So they give you an image. It might be a book, and my, one of my favorites is there's a Greek Hebrew one that's just Hebrew on one side and Greek on the other. And it's, it's just a, it's a book with Greek on one side and Hebrew on the other. A little book icon. But I know when I tap on that, I know what I'm going to get. And he goes, that's what Jesus is. As far as the God you can't see, if you tap on to Jesus, you're going to get all of God in him. That's a beautiful thing. You know you're getting the whole process, the whole, the whole program, the moment you tap on him. That's what he is. But he's also the firstborn. Now let me challenge you with this. There are those out there that try to tell you that Jesus is not God. Now I don't want to say who because I don't embarrass anyone, but there are people who witness about Jehovah. And they come to your door and as they do, they'll try to say, well look, it says firstborn, therefore he had to be created. Well, there's a couple of things you need to know. First of all, the term for firstborn is actually prototokos. We get the term prototype from it. But it is not... Well, let me say it this way. It is a title given. Can a person be not the firstborn in their family and still be given the title of firstborn? As a matter of fact, we see that with Joseph, for instance. When his two kids, by the way, Ephraim and Manasseh, were born, Manasseh was older, but he lays, in essence, Grandpa lays hands on Ephraim and gives him this, the status of preeminence. As a matter of fact, the same thing happened with Joseph because Joseph was 11 of 12 boys. That means he has 10 older brothers, but he's the first one of dad's favorite wife. Yeah, that's a dysfunctional family. As a result of that, dad wants to give him 
the title of firstborn. The reason I say that is, it's important to note, it is not saying that you are created. What it's saying is, this is a title. What's so important about the firstborn? Well, there's three things. One is, he is responsible for taking over the family business and honor and name. He is responsible, in essence, for all that is wrapped up in the name. So, that's fundamental. Second one, he is responsible. He gets an extra share of the inheritance. So, in other words, if there were two sons, for instance, if I, let me say, if I had three sons, and these were my three sons, Hugo, Daniel, and Bruno, and of these, are you the oldest? That's probably how that works, huh? No, that's good. You're my, you're my firstborn boy. <laughs> now, what that means is I would break my inheritance into four parts, and then Bruno would get two of them. In other words, Bruno gets half the inheritance. Why would I give him the extra because he is also responsible for my burial. What that does is it honors me. And he doesn't get all of it at first. He gets half of it with the boys in the beginning. Because that burial takes a year. He puts me in a thing called a sarcophagus, which means flesh eater. It's a big old thing because property is not exactly an easy thing. Uh, and it's not a, you know, it's, it's a commodity at best in Israel. It's very, very little land. So for that year, you basically just put dad and let him rot. And then after that's done, you take all those bones and you shove it in a bone box. That's called an ossuary. That's much smaller now. It's roughly the size. It has to be longer, just a little longer than the longest bone. That's your femur. It has to be a little wider than your whitest bone. What's your whitest bone in your body? Your head. That's right. And so it fits in there. And then you can actually slip a whole bunch of those. The whole family gets to be buried together. Now, don't miss this. In other words, Bruno gets half of it the day I die. As do the other boys. But a year later, he collects the rest of it. When there is a time where Jesus is walking and a man says, I will follow you, but first let me bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. And I'm like, that's cold. He couldn't have had that conversation if his dad were still alive. That would have to be a conversation with dad being dead for quite a while. So my take for what it's worth is, what he's saying is, Dad's been dead for a while, but I am this close to the rest of my inheritance. Give me another couple of weeks. Let me put Dad in the box, shove him where we need to put him, and I get the rest of the money. And he goes, let the dead bury the own dead. In other words, Jesus is saying, choose your inheritance, boy. What do you really want? Anyways, it's for consideration. So he's the firstborn. It is a title of authority. He is then, in essence, Dad number two, if you will, as far as the rest of the brothers are concerned. Which is why you could see why people had a problem with Joseph when ten older brothers were there. In all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. He's not only creator, he is also the purpose for it. If all things were created, are you a thing? Were you created? Then you could put yourself in this text. You know, for instance, Suti could say, I, because I was created, I was created through him and for him. You were created for God. He, he actually gave himself, he, he actually made a present for himself, and it was you. Imagine that. And he says, and he's before all things. The word there, by the way, is sunistami. And sunistami literally means, you know, that they, he stands in front of, if you will, and, uh, together 
This is in him all things consist. He's actually before is the word pro, like ahead of, and then sodistim is the word for consist. They stand together. He holds everything together. Every atom in your body is held together. That's, by the way, I think it's an eight or a seven and 27 zeros. That's how many atoms are in your body. And one of those can blow up this whole area when you split it. And the reaction that happens, and one day God's going to let them all go apart. No wonder why the entire universe will melt with fervent heat. He's the head of the body. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, and in him all things that he may have preeminence. Now, where this protruho, it literally means he may be ranked number one. He goes, do we have the same God? Do we have the same Jesus? Because I want to make sure we have the same Jesus. He was the one who made you. He was the one you were made for. He's the one who holds all things together. So who are you going to? Why would you go to a saint when you could go to Jesus, who's actually the one in charge? He's firstborn, so he's actually responsible for all of these things. And if that be the case, and the whole point that he's making is, Jesus is everything you need, and you're completing them. That's what he's telling you. He's everything you need, and he's everything you need to seek. Now, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and to him to reconcile all things to himself. He is fully God. Whether things on earth and heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You were once alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, but yet now he has reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless. And one of my favorite words, above reproach. Now what is anankletos? And anankletos means unaccusable. There is nothing you can be accused of. That's the word for above reproach in his sight. Now that doesn't mean the enemy can't lie. But the one who is the judge, nobody can put an accusation before of you. If indeed you continue in the faith. Notice he says, this is going to be the fundament. You're walking down this path. You need to continue in the faith. Grounded and steadfast, not moved away. From the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached under to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, has become a minister. Are you with me so far? Now, we approach, in the last part of chapter 1, uh, what, we would, what I would carefully call a difficult text. Listen to this. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, to this end, I also labor, striving according to the working, which works in me mightily. Wait a minute. What, Paul? Fill in your body what is lacking in Christ? Christ's suffering was not enough? What a strange statement when he's trying to tell you that Jesus is enough in every way. And yet Paul says, I need to fill this gap. So what do we do when we approach a difficult scripture? I'm going to give it to you quickly, but I want to remind you, this is being recorded so you can review it. And for the sake of time, I'll go relatively quick. But when I approach a scripture and my first thought is, what the heck is this? I, go, I give it a sort of a six-point thing. The first thing is, 
I stop everything and I pray. I have to do that. Lord, I need you to speak to me in this. Second, I lay out the facts from the text. Not things that I can interpret, just what does it clearly and plainly say? So I need to know that it's that I'm not trying to bend it some way because I'm already freaked out by the text. Third, then, I lay out the context. First, of the book, and then second, of its section. What is Paul saying in the general of it all? And what is this particular section about? Because I don't want to pull that out and try to get at something weird. I want to make sure that that diamond sits in the ring properly. Then, I set scriptural boundaries. What can't it mean? In a case like this, for instance, it couldn't mean that Paul has to suffer for our salvation. I can find texts that are clearly making it clear that Jesus, is his suffering for our salvation was enough. His sanctification is not a work of Paul either because that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's another boundary. And once I set scriptural boundaries, what I recognize then is I can consider options within those boundaries. And the cool thing is because I've set boundaries that I know are scriptural, I can look at those and we can have a difference of opinion on those different options. I can say, well, here's an option or here's an option. You can go, well, I kind of side with this one and I kind of side with this one. But we all know that it's within the confines of scriptural boundaries. And so therefore we could still fellowship in that difference. So I kind of set boundaries and then I go, it's okay not to know. That's my number six is in the end of it all, I could be like, you know, I really just don't know, but I'm sure God will tell me someday. And what's bottom line is if you don't get it right now, there's probably a good reason for it. And that is, God really doesn't want you to know right now. There's something better. Now, I can tell you my opinion on something like this, but that's the cool part is when we approach a difficult text, inevitably we're probably going to find an opinion, if that makes sense. My opinion in all of it is, is Paul could, okay, again, fact, he couldn't be suffering for our salvation. Fact, he couldn't be suffering for our sanctification. So what's left? is that I would say, this is my opinion, is that Paul is suffering to be, give us an example of something we couldn't just rule out when we see Jesus. And that's, well, of course he suffered like that and endured it. He's God. So I couldn't do that because I'm not God. So Paul says, that's the one thing. I'm removing that excuse from you. I'm going to suffer as a human being and not bail on my faith. So you can see that we can do that you don't have to be God to do that. None again, it's just my opinion. But it, again, it fits within the dance floor. But I didn't come to that conclusion without going through these steps first. Because there are going to be texts you're going to go to, and you're going to go, I have no idea what this means. Try this. And then at the end of it, if you don't get any clarity, don't obsess on it. Go, well, then Lord, you can tell me at another time I'm going to move on. Now, when we get to chapter 2, we start developing then the whole point of this. Up to this point, what Paul says is, look at I am praying for you, and I want you to stay true and hold your course. Now we see why. I'll read two by three, we'll go on the round. So follow me in this. I want you to know what great conflict I have for you, for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Obviously, we haven't met face to face. He is suffering, though, for purpose, is where he started this. That was what he said last in the last portion. I want you to know, though, I have a great conflict for you guys, that your hearts would be encouraged. 
being knit together in love, attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God. Quick, who can tell me what book we focus on the mystery of God? That was beautiful, Dad. Ephesians indeed. Nice. Both the Father and of Christ, of whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I say this. Now no, we're going to get into the, to the girth of it now. Lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Paul goes, I know. You've said yes to Jesus. I know it because of two things. I have heard of the testimony of your trust in Christ. And what was the other thing that I know? What are you guys demonstrating that gives me confidence? Excellent, the way you love each other. I see that, and because I see that, but I also know that there are people out there that are going to try to sidetrack you. So I, I'm saying this, that my whole prayer is that you would be able to take this to the end in your understanding of Christ, to take it in the end of who you know Christ to be. And you're not going to let these guys hijack your route, your route in it. Interesting, by the way, the term deceive for what it's worth Paladisumai, uh, is the idea, by the way, of just kind of, in essence, kind of doing what that hawker would do at one of those booths. Just call out to you and just try to draw you over. And that's the idea of a persuasive word, by the way, as well. Pithanologia. He says, Though I'm absent in the flesh, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ, Jesus is Lord, so walk in him. Let me ask you, what book did Paul actually have a problem with? Because they received Christ in the spirit, but they were trying to walk in the flesh instead. Excellent, Bruno. Yes, Galatians. He goes, he goes, how in the world did you receive Jesus one way and you're trying to actually make your religion the opposite? He goes, can I encourage you guys on the other hand? You know how you receive Jesus. That's the way I want you to walk then. Rooted and built up in him, Establishing the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Therefore, and here we go, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men and according to the principles of this world, of the world, not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Here is the crux of the whole book. Hear me in this. Beware. Heads up, lest anyone cheat. And this is one of my favorite words in this whole thing. So try this word with me. Sula gogeho. Sula? Gogeho. Sula gogeho. And it literally means lead away from the booty. Lead away from the treasure. To veer you away from the prize. Isn't it a perfect word for cheat under this? Hugo and Deb are on their way to meet Daniel so they can enjoy something on the other side of that. That's their prize. And again, it's a very lame ex example in comparison. But in the end of it all, the whole point of it is, is that they have a destination and it's something they really want. And he goes, look at, I want you to be aware that there are going to be many opportunities. Hear me, beloved. There are going to be many opportunities in your walk with Christ. Many opportunities to turn aside when you're actually walking toward when you're going the right way. And they're going to look close enough at first that you won't even realize. You'll go, well, the path's kind of wide, isn't it? Not according to Jesus. He says the path is narrow. And it's actually difficult. He says, oh, the path is wide that leads to destruction. People are like, oh, aren't we all on the same path? They go, most of you are, yes. <laughs> but it isn't really a good one. 
Jesus said it led to destruction. So what are the four things he tells us here? Are like, the, if you will, the stalls trying to pull you aside? The first of them, philosophy. Aren't that interesting? Now, we read about philosophy in the book of Acts, where it told us that the Athenians, those that were at Mars Hill, they, they are all pagans, did nothing but to speak and to hear, to listen to the latest thing. And that's philosophy in its simplest sense. There's no action and it's all talk. Now what's interesting is, a lot of Christianity, that's where we could go. We could say, oh, I trust in God, but remember, it wasn't just, I trust in God, but it was also the love for all the saints. By the way, it does not say the love for the world. Isn't it interesting? What Paul was gauging, first of all, is how are you guys treating each other as Christians? And he looks and he says here, he goes, look at one of the things that could, that could steer you away from the prize is that you get caught up in philosophy. And can I just say it this way? The danger is that it's more important to be smart than saved. And it can happen. Now, inside you're happy to be saved and all that kind of thing, but, in, but outside, the most important thing is still being smart. And that's a problem because the world thinks that the gospel is foolishness. So what do you do then? The second is empty deceit. Kenosapate, and kenosapate, by the way, is empty delusions. And the idea of it, by the way, often this happens in sort of the spiritual of, uh, place with the supernatural. Where what happens is something is being experienced and someone leads you out of scripture because, let's face it, this guy's doing a miracle or something really cool is happening. So let's just do that instead of make sure that we're actually in the truth in this. And that's the idea of a delusion. An empty one means that there's a whole lot of promise, but nothing really comes out of it. The third, men's traditions. That's another place we could go. Paradosis. And the idea of that is, you get the idea of traditions, precepts and traditions. So what happens, by the way, you realize we have traditions too, right? It isn't like you have to wear a robe or light incense to be traditional. We sing at the beginning of a church service. We have communion the first Sunday of the month. I mean, it's not bad to have things that are set and orderly. You just can't allow those things. You can't trade in your, pro your proper walk with Christ just to do things because you're familiar with them and you're comfortable with them. So what would happen if the Lord brought in a whole bunch of people that, were, that loved to praise God at the end? What we used to do on our Saturday night, Rick was reminding of it yesterday, what we used to do on our Saturday nights is we'd have this time of worship and then uh, in praise. Then we'd have the teaching. And then we'd say, hey, look, we know most of you probably have to go, but we're going to do more a time of just praising the Lord and taking a time and seeking the Lord in prayer. We do it every Saturday. It's the reason why we get home so late on a Saturday night. And he's like, he's like, I loved that. There was a time where we were like, you know what? We are not going to sing at the beginning. We're going to take time. We're just going to pray. And we're going to spend 20 minutes on our knees before we actually get into the Word. People are like, that just seems so weird. It doesn't seem right. Can you imagine it didn't seem right because we prayed for 20 minutes? So it was like, because it's a tradition. And again, the whole point of it is not like it has to be unpredictable. It can be predictable. But he goes, if it turns aside where that's more important than your walk with Jesus, you know you're in trouble. And you know, let's face it, the Lord is going to grow each one of us out of what we're comfortable and familiar with. Or we're really not going to grow like we should. And the last of them, the basic principles of this world. Stoichion, and Stoichion, by the way, means things in order or in a row. So people would go, well, you know, this is kind of the way of the world. This is how it works. This is how a business works, so a church needs to work that way. This is how we hire. These are the CVs we review. This is what we look for. Now the church needs to do that. This is what a church looks like when it's successful. 
Because in the world, this is the way it works in the world. This is what we're trying to get because this is what the world, and it's like, and it, the problem is it's going to make sense to the natural mind. And then Jesus is going to tell you something that throws it all out the window because it doesn't make sense according to the world. So let me ask you, what are the basic things that they're trying to rob from you? The two, there's going to be two basic points that these, these four things are going to try to rob from you. Well, look at what he says. Four, verse nine, which means because. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What does that mean? How can you put that in other words? In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The whole of God dwells in Jesus. Damn you, rock. Yes, don't miss that. Jesus is all God. All the God, all of God is wrapped up in Jesus. Now, the reason I say that is, that's one of the things they're going to go after. Jesus is kind of God. He's kind of, well, look, he's 100% God. He's 100% man. How do you do the math in it? He's God. He can do it that way. He's not limited to math. Well, Jesus is only the son of God. Yeah, actually, he's God. Well, he's the son of God and he's God the son. And they're like, well, and see, if he isn't fully God, well, then he's not fully powerful enough to handle everything. But it's the second one that's the clincher. What's the second one? You read it, verse 10. Take the first half of that and put it in your own words. You tell me. Oh, just risk it. Give it a try. So how would you put that? How would you put that in your words? That's what those guys in the stalls are pulling you away from. The Jesus is all the God I need, and Jesus is all that I need. So you know what'll happen? It's like, yeah, but let's add tattoos. Let's add well I, what kind of music do you listen to? Let's add how where do you stand on God's sovereignty? Where do you stand on, we're the smart Christians, we're the black Christians, we're the white Christians, we're the African Christians, we're the... All of a sudden it stops being all about Jesus. Or we're the single Christians, and we will be complete when we finally get married. Paul is saying, look at what they're telling you. You're complete in him. Well, it's easy for you to say you're married. Hey, first time I read this, I wasn't. And be like, I need to recognize I'm complete in you, Jesus. And somebody that's telling me that I need Jesus plus something is pulling me away from the prize. Now, what are they going to use? They'll say, well, they'll use philosophy. They'll use empty deceit, some kind of smoke and mirror experience. They'll use traditions, and they'll use the basic principles of this world. They'll go, hey, look at Everybody in the world needs someone. You do too. Everyone in the world needs God's blessings. And let me describe what those blessings are. New houses, new cars, new jobs. 
And in the end of it all, if you walk out feeling like you're actually more empty than full, chances are you're being led away from the prize. Unless the problem is just you're not really taking in what you're supposed to. Does that make sense? Paul's like, look at, I know we don't know each other real well. I know you know who I am, but I don't, I mean, I know you guys are there, and Epaphras has told me you guys are there, and, you, and I know that you guys have faith in Christ, and you're loving one another, so I'm confident you guys are a good church. I'm confident you guys are on it, but I just really want to make sure you recognize Jesus is all the God you need, and he's all that you need. And because that's the case, now that doesn't mean we don't pray to the Father. That doesn't mean we don't trust the Holy Spirit. But it also means we don't put in another guy or a dead saint or a picture of something or something else and say, well, once you add that or the church becomes an entity where it's like Jesus saves, but then the church is required, a specific church that you have to join because then they'll take care of the rest of your sins. Or you have to sit in a box and tell someone else your sins because all that stuff becomes stuff that becomes, in essence, pulling you away from the prize. Because what happens in the simplest sense is your eyes get off Jesus for this thing. Well, I'm all about the systematic theology of proving this point. Or I'm all about, you know, we're super charismatic expialidocious people. You know, we wait, we don't only speak in tongues, we levitate. You know, and in the end of it all, it's like, you know, your eyes are off Jesus for the shakes and the barks and the yells or for the robes or for the incense or whatever. And it's like, here's the, the sad part is you can speak in tongues and keep your eyes on Jesus. You can light incense and keep your eye on Jesus. Well, but if you can't, then you shouldn't do it. Because I want to warn you, there's no shortage of it. And the problem is, it's in the root, which means these are things parked at church. These are things parked in your walk. And there's some guy and he's like on the internet or someone that you know, like I'm a Christian, but hey, I know that this is what it says, but back off on that. Let's just do it this way instead. And Paul's like, you know what? If I could have my way, I'd meet you at the end. Now, I may not be able to come and visit and hang out with you guys. I didn't plant the church, so I really don't want to interfere like that. But I really want to meet you guys in the end. I want to stand with you in Epaphras, and I want to see the smile on Epaphras' face when I watch all of you standing with him because you made it to the end. You didn't just kind of go, yeah, Jesus is cool, but let's get this stuff too. Does that make sense? Can you see how important this is? Because let's face it, isn't this what takes down every revival are these things? Isn't this what takes down every great movement? The only thing I might add to that is, of course, some big sin that starts jumping into things. Eleven. The problem is, you know that's wrong the moment that enters in. It's this stuff where you could actually be off the road and you don't even know it. So what Paul is doing is he's laying those little bumps you put on the road. So when you start veering off, you go, duh, 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 duh. oh, wait, wait, I, should get, I need to get back on. That's what these are. Okay, so let's finish this chapter and then let's, let's read in the round. Do you get that? Does that make sense? There is one group, though, by the way, he does recognize is actually not just following Paul around, but apparently Epaphras, too. Verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. What group is following him around? The circumcision. Now, what church does he have to write to? What church does he really focus this on before this? Excellent. Galatians, yes. Remember, that's what he said. Circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't really matter anything. The two things that matter are who you are and what you do. Who you are, a new creation. What you do, you exercise your faith and love. Now, look at it. So don't, they're going, oh, you guys aren't the circumcision. Which tells me, by the way, they were Gentiles for the most part. 
And you, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Which, by the way, that sounds like a better deal. Putting off, sorry, the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Can anyone tell me what book says that? Buried with him in, in baptism, raised in the newness of life. No? But there's, a, there's that concept, the new man. The book of Romans. He tells us that it's one of the fundamental points of the third section, sanctification. You being dead in your trespasses and sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive together with him. What book, Marcia? That's it, yeah. (laughs) Having forgiven you all your trespasses. And then he says, let me tell you what else he's done for you. He's wiped out the handwriting of requirements. That word, by the way, exalifo is the word that means to blot out. It was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way. I love that word. It means to rip off and take away. And he nailed him to the cross. Let me tell you what he did. For you, he took everything that said guilty, and he ripped it off of you. Everything that was required of you for your punishment, he has completely blotted out. It's done. You only blot it out when it's done. And it's done. And then you know what he did with the enemy? He disarmed them. That word, by the way, apekdumai, is the word that literally means to strip off. In other words, you pull off all of their armor and their weaponry. So all of a sudden, the enemy that was there with his like RPGs and his machetes and so forth, now he's just kind of standing there naked and completely vulnerable. But he only, not only did that, he says, but then he made a public spectacle of them. And that means he humiliated them. That word, digamatizo, means, by the way, to exhibit bluntly. He's like, everyone take a look at this. Look at what he is now. And get the idea. This was the guy that was torturing you and and making your life miserable and dominating you. And Jesus just took him and stripped everything, ripped his muscles off him and said, take a look at him now. Interesting, by the way. We see that in regards to the enemy where at the end of it all, we'll look at the devil and go, this is the man who did all that? Wow, I sure made him bigger than that. No, you get the idea. But it also says he triumphed over them in it. Triumph, by the way, is a word that means a big noisy procession or parade. And at the end of something, a, a group goes to war and they completely destroy the enemy. What they do, though, is they take the leader of that army and they chain him to the chariot of the man who led the brigade. And they have a, a triumph. A triumph is a victory parade. And what it tells us, if we put all this together, is this. There is a chariot Jesus rode to conquer the enemy. That chariot, according to this, is the cross. For which then the enemy follows behind and Jesus goes, look at him now, he'll never be a threat to you again. Oh, he can still lie, but he's no threat to you anymore. So then, if that's what you know, the enemy is completely defeated. If you know that you're totally victorious now because of what Jesus has done, well then let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Isn't that legalism? Which are the shadow of things to come. The substance is Christ, remember. And then he says, let no one cheat you of your reward. Now, this is a different word. This word here, katabrabiucho, means, by the way, to judge against you. Think of Simon Cowell going, I find you horrible. That's the idea of this. The problem is, for them, they have no authority to say it. You know, someone will go, what? You really just read the Bible? I remember reading about a person who's a, a very well-known author 
that a friend of mine was way into. And he gave me back in those days a cassette. He goes, you need to listen to this. It will really bless you. And I put it in. And the first couple of days, he's doing this lecture. And he's waxing eloquent. And he says, there's really only two kinds of people you need to be very weary of. The radical liberal and the closed-minded legalist or something like that. And he says, the first group, they say that you can just believe whatever you want. The second group believes that all you really need is the Bible and the Holy Spirit. And he goes, they're both just as dangerous. And my whole thought is, well, I'm the second group, so I don't know how well we're going to get along here. I genuinely believe. But isn't it interesting? Didn't Paul already say Jesus is all you need? So I want to warn you, there are going to be people that are going to make fun of you for that. And they take delight in false humility. They worship angels, intruding into the things which they've not seen, vainly puffed up in their fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head with whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Can anyone tell me what book actually emphasizes the idea of Jesus being the head of the church? It's Ephesians chapter 5. Now, the idea of it is if Jesus is the head and that sponsors and supports and guides the whole body, you really need your head. But you don't need parasites trying to attach to it. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to the regulations? Don't touch that. Don't taste. Don't handle. Aren't you thankful that it says, that you know, this whole don't taste thing, that's just goofy. Uh, with all concern, things which perish in the using, glory to God. According to the commandments and doctrines of men, these things indeed have the appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but they are no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So he goes, no. I see your faith. I mean, I've been told of your faith and your love for one another. I want to make sure we have the same God. This Jesus, he created you. Not only, you were not only created by him, you were created for him. And he holds you together. He holds all things together that includes you. And he holds you together. And I want to make sure we're all the same on this. Because there's a group of people out there, different groups of people, that are going to use different tactics to veer you away from the simplicity of Jesus. And if you're like, Jesus, you really are all I need, and I really am complete in you, then you're in the right place. And the moment says, well, you need my program, and you need my, my club, and my group. Look at, if you were to leave here and never come to this church again, I would be very, very sad, of course, because I love you guys. But you were in a healthy fellowship somewhere. I, how in the world could I possibly go? I don't think that person's saved. They're not going to shoreline. That's the dumbest thing. And for someone to say you need to be baptized into our church or you need to be a, a, a member of our church, we don't even have a membership. We're a member of the body of Christ. That's good enough for me. And the only reason I'm trying to diss other churches, but I'm saying be careful when it's like you got to rely on something and Jesus or Jesus and something. It's like, I study his word because I want to know him better. But Jesus is still the end route. It gets my eyes on Jesus, and I make sure that it's the right one. That's fundamental to me. Because they're going to use things like philosophy. They're going to use things like supernatural, esoteric experiences. They're going to use things like the principles of this world or traditions. Traditions are the principles as well. They're going to use those things on you so that you can somehow, when they're done, you'll be convinced that Jesus isn't all that he says he is and that he's not all that you need. And in the end of it all, Jesus is everything he says he is, and he's all you need. And if you got that, you're going to do all right. He goes, but they're going to be playing these games with you. 
And you'll never stop hearing them in the world. So make sure you're in a fellowship. I like, I like to think you're preaching. I'm preaching the choir. But make sure you're in a fellowship where you, that challenges you to keep your eyes on Jesus. Because anything else that's Christian-ish is still not right. It's like, well, this is, you know, you need a life-saving drug, and you're like, well, this is drug-ish. This is still drugs. Why don't you just take this? Because like, it's not the cure. All right. Should we take a quick break? No, you're stupefied. I'm going to take a 10-minute break. I'm going to read around the last two chapters it picks up, because now it's just applying that. And the last chapter is going to be really fun to read around, because it's a lot of names. You're like, Tichi, Kichi, Kichikus. <laughs> he says hi. <laughs> so, yeah, see, nicely done. All right. Well, Lord, we could just power through it, but we don't want to do that. What we really want to do is understand you better. And we want to grab those two things. Jesus, you are everything you say you are. And you are everything we need. Get that not just through our minds, but our hearts and our spirits, we pray. And may we live in the delight of that. Because everything we need is readily available and the only one we need loves us and nothing can separate us from your love. Thank you for that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Now we're getting to our application. Our simplest sense is you got to know what Jesus is. That's our chapter one. Chapter two, I want you to recognize how they're going to try to steer you away. Keep your eye on the prize. Do not let them use those four things. Can anyone, let's just exercise a short-term memory of yours. What are the four things they're trying to use to steer you away? Philosophy. Philosophy. Beautiful. Tradition. Tradition. Empty. Empty delusions. Yes, empty delusions. Excellent. Sort of experiences. The way of the world. The, wow, excellent way of the world. You nailed them. Nice. What were the two basic points they're trying to steer you from? Okay, fifth and love. Well, in a sense, but I mean, your understanding of Jesus. Jesus is all God, and and Jesus is all you need. Beautiful. You got it. That makes me happy. All right. Well, let's take a look at chapter three. Three and four now pick up because the whole idea is let's apply it. And what we're going to say is, well, if that's the case, then, then this is what you should do. Now that you know you have the right Jesus, now that you know that we have to keep the course, stay and, di- and not divert, and not, uh, be, not go on diversion to any of these things, well, then this is how we stay true. We'll develop, in essence, just a little bit of the first two verses, and we'll probably read through the rest for the most part. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. O oh Lord, again, minister, profoundly minister to each of us, we pray in Jesus' name, your name, amen. The word seek, zatejo, means to plot or desire or endeavor after. It also means to worship. In other words, set your course for this. Let your affections be set here. Let your desires be set here. And what is it that you're setting your desires on? The things of above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Marcy, go ahead and take two. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. The term for set your mind, for now, 
in essence, means exercise your mind. Put your mind on this. The things above. <coughs> now, can you imagine? We are challenged to think heavenly. It's the simplest way of putting it. Have anyone ever told you you could be so heavenly minded, you'll be no earthly good? That drives me crazy. Can I say this? If you're not heavenly minded, you may not be, you'll, you'll probably be no earthly good. Because the way that we're good to the earth is by representing the place that we come from that they have no understanding. They'll never hear otherwise, at least honestly. So, be exercise your mind entertained, have sentiment or opinion on. So, put your mind on the things above, set your mind on those things above, by the way, for what it's worth. Okay, seek and set your mind. Verse 3. For you die and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. In which you yourself once walked when you lived in town. What book challenges us to put things to death like that? It's kind of two in simple, simple sense. One focuses on that. Well, boy, that would be nice because they really need to. <laughs> yeah. Romans, because that's the whole sanctification. It's put to death, reckon the old man dead. But we'll see even here more the other area of it. And then let's see if you can tell me where this comes from. Verse 8. But now you yourself are to put of all this anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Light one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in, a, in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Can anyone tell me what book focuses on putting off the old man and putting on the new? Galatians. That would be good, but yeah. Putting off these things and putting on that, that's the book of Ephesians. But when we do that, and then we walk, 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 and if you can't walk, stand. Does that sound familiar? That's Ephesians. Okay. Verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Put on tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint, complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalm, hymns, and spiritual song, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's going to be two of these in all things that you do. Something an all-encompassing thing, then, right? No matter what you do. Imagine, I'm going to brush my teeth in the name of Jesus. 
all things you do. How do you do that? Well, if I'm going to do everything in clear recognition that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, it all makes sense. But imagine, I mean, that's only silly in comparison because there's so many other things we do that are much more important that we should do in his name. So when someone's like, yeah, I'm a musician and I write songs, but I don't want to do anything that has like Jesus in it, even though I'm a Christian because, you know, that's not my ministry. I'm like, well, what is your ministry? Well, that doesn't matter. Yeah, it kind of is. You need to do everything in Jesus' name. Now, I'm not trying to diss someone in that sense, but the idea of it is, I'm going to represent Jesus in everything I do. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to go and get Jesus tattooed on your forehead. You know, I'm not telling you you can't, but <laughs> I'm not telling you you should, that's for sure. But just, I mean, imagine, okay, I'm going to do everything in Jesus' name. I'm not going to withhold his name from it. No, let's talk about how to live in his name. By the way, this whole... Does this sound familiar at all? Though he does this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That sound familiar? Because in Ephesians 5, you're going to find the same thing, but he uses this instead. He says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to God. There is that similar thing. It's interesting, the two times that's used, the first is being filled with the Spirit, and the second, letting the word of Christ dwell in you. Interesting that both of those seem to bear the result. Now, I'd like to think on being filled with the Spirit, His Word is going to richly dwell in me as well. Now, I do want to point this out, and we'll move, right, we'll move forward, but notice in verse 15 and in verse 16 the word let. Do you see that word? What does it mean to let? Not like it's vacant and someone should live there. Excellent. Something needs something wants to happen. It has a will or a desire to. And all that's expected of you is allowance. Permission. What are the two things that are wanting, that have an ambition, that all they're looking for is your permission? Ah, oh, can you imagine? The peace of God wants to rule your heart. And all he's asking for, if you will, is your permission. Isn't that crazy? It doesn't say fester up or force or strive to get the peace of Christ to rule in your hearts. Can you imagine? Because isn't that how we kind of think? It's like God's peace wants to rule in your heart. Would you let it, please? What's the other one? What about the Word of Christ? What does the Word of Christ want to do? Oh, could you imagine? I do want the Word of Christ to dwell in me richly. So I'd say, Lord, you have my permission. Let your peace rule my heart. Rule in my heart and let your word dwell in me richly. Bring it on. Okay. You can see why that had to be developed. So let's tell me about these verses. These sound familiar? Verse 18. Wives, submit to your, husband, to your own husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Father... Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not be thy servants as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not to men. Do you get that again? There's our whatever you do. 
So what are our two whatever you do's? What's the first of them? Do it heartedly. That's the second one, right? What's the first? Do it. Do it. That's good. You're on your way. <laughs> Do it. Hint, verse 17. Do it. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do it in Jesus' name, giving thanks to the Father through him. What's the second one? Whatever you do, do it as to the Lord. Can you brush your teeth unto the Lord? Can you work unto the Lord? Can you clean unto the Lord? Can you prepare unto the Lord? Can you sell a guitar unto the Lord, doing it heartily? What does it mean to do something heartily? What's that? Excellent, yes. You go. Put your heart in it. The world has seen enough half-hearted, or might I dare say, no-hearted Christianity. And you know what it's like when somebody doesn't put their heart in it. It becomes a joke at best. I saw this Christian band once, and I could tell that they clearly had a fight before they got on the stage. And the guitarist had that look like he, like, pardon me for saying, like somebody just farted in an elevator, in a lift. Because he had that look where he was just kind of, one side of his face was going up, and he was like, and he was rolling his eyes all the time. And I was like, oh my goodness, I am so sorry you're here. For you. And you can tell, I mean, it's like, it's like it was the, the last time I can remember a concert where most of the people just got up and walked out. They were just like, Ugh. and it wasn't that their music was poor. It was just that, I mean, let's face it, if, if your heart's not in, how would you expect anyone else's? When it comes to, you know, when it comes to something like worship, for instance, praise, it's like, man, if we're like, uh, whatever. But if we want everyone else to be weighing in it, how in the world does that work, you know? It's like, come on, everybody, let's just be whelming. Not overwhelming, just whelming. <laughs> Yay. It's like, what are we saying? God, you're so okay. No, he's not. He's awesome. So, okay, so let me ask you. Husbands, wives, children, uh, children, fathers, bond servants. Can you remember what book that came from where there was that focus on those applications? What's that? Yes, Deb. Ephesians. And that was after that be being filled thing. In the same year with after letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He's like, let's apply that. You gotta fit into one of these sooner or later. Alright. Verse no, whatever you do, do it heartily. Put your heart in it. As to the Lord and not to men. Verse twenty four. Why? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the rewards of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. So what if we prayed that this week? Even if we just focused on the things we did that we knew were focused on the Lord. So let's say that's a study tomorrow morning. That's a study tomorrow night for Dan. That's our time in prayer or in quiet times with our wives or husbands. That is the time we actually seek to be a blessing to someone else where we're sharing Jesus. What if before or somewhere in it, God nailed us on one time and goes, hey, put your heart in it. And we just go, Lord, please. 
put my heart in it. Can you imagine what would happen? What would happen if we just prayed that for Sunday? Oh, God, let church be a time. Let that time of worship and praise be a time I put my heart in it. Let the time when I grab the person next to me and I pray for them and pray with them, that I put my heart in it. Doing it in your name. I'm going to put my heart in it. Because I'll be honest, there are times, and I'm just going to single somebody out, and I tend not to try, I try not to do this, but there are times where Deb blesses me so much because her voice wafts through the crowd. You know, it's like you've got a bunch of people and they're kind of going, oh, so, and not to diss anyone else, but they're kind of, you know, and some people, you actually even know you have good voices and you're afraid to use them. And, like, and then Deb's like, and I love it. I love it because it's like, I just know that there are times where I just like, man, that girl's putting her heart in it. And it so inspires me. It only takes one person to put their heart in it to inspire people around them. What if that were you? Now, I'm not telling you you have to spaz out like me. Because <laughs> you may not be that kind of person. But you know what it's like in the end when you've given a half-hearted thing and you expect a full-hearted response from it. And in that, there's just something satisfying about knowing you put your heart in it. So what if we... Okay, so look at We're praying. I'm already just kind of laying this stuff out, right? We're praying, first of all. That we would have, that we'd exercise our faith by the way we love one another, and then we put our heart in it and do it in His name. How's that? It's a pretty fun place. Let's get to chapter four now. We have one, and I don't. Pardon me for saying I don't know why verse one ended up in chapter four and it wasn't with the rest of chapter three. You know, it's like you know, husbands, wives, fathers, children, servants. Oh yeah, and chapter four, bosses. Who's got verse one? Okay. Be your bond servants, what is just and fair, knowing that you have a master in heaven. You, I know you want to do that. You want to write that verse out and leave it somewhere. You're like your boss's job. You're somewhere where he looks like the mirror or something. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Let me ask you. So one one thing he kind of knows that they're doing. They're praying earnestly because he couldn't tell them to continue if they weren't doing it. So you guys keep doing that. Don't you love it when someone's like, "Hey, that's a good thing. Keep that up." Dad, that's a good thing, by the way. Keep that up. Oh yeah. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open the door. For the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. Clearly, Paul's writing this. Remember, he has these letters he's written from Roman prison. Colossians is clearly one of them. That I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Okay, what book focuses on how we walk? Remember, walk, 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 and if you can't walk, stand. Ephesians, Ephesians. excellent. A lot of that in this, isn't it? Let your speech always be with grace, using with souls, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Did you notice the word let there? Wait a minute, your speech actually wants to be with grace? What does it mean to be with grace? What is grace in the first place, in the simplest sense? What's grace? Excellent, it's a gift. Imagine this, let your speech be a gift. Let it always be 
a gift to someone. Seasoned with salt. What in the world does that mean? Acts, that's beautiful. Bruno, that's beautiful. Let there be a hint of eternity, at least a hint of eternity in everything. Let it season the way you speak. I like that. So then you know how to answer each one. Like, I don't know how to answer you, but I can tell you this. What I, I want to speak something that will be a gift to you. I want to speak something that smells like eternity. And not just the you know, eternity from Cologne or whatever. Okay. Oh, do I get first seven? Look at who I get. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. What does that tell you about Tychicus? He delivered the letter. He'll tell you all about what's going on. Well, he obviously, Paul had been, he'd been sent by Paul. More than likely, he carried this letter. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Our servers, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome. Now, by the way, we kind of know there's been a little bit of a rough spot with John Mark, hasn't there been? If you're familiar with the book of Acts, remember that was what kind of caused Barnabas and Paul almost to get in with his fight? Because Barnabas wanted to take him and Paul said no. Clearly, somewhere in this, he's kind of reconciling. He's like, hey, John Mark may come. He's okay. I vouch for him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. There. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God, who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Let me ask you, what does it mean? These are my only fellow workers who are of the circumcision. What does that mean? What's that? Excellent. So everybody from that point up were Jewish. Everyone he says from now on, is not Jewish. Does that make sense? So he's like, hey, all these guys, these are my Jewish, this is my Jew crew. Pardon me for saying that. Now, from this point on, it's kind of like this is, that really did, that was not supposed to sound like that. Oh boy, pray for me. Everyone from this point on, Gentiles. Verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bond servant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness, and he has a great zeal for you, and those who are in Laodicea, mm -hmm. and those in Hierapolis. Remember I was saying those are the other two cities of the triangle? Who is it that's so fervent for him? Epaphras. Epaphras. Who is that guy? What's his relationship to the church? One of you. Yeah, excellent. He planted it. Remember? He was the one who told Paul in the first place, hey, there's this church I planted, man. Yeah. Verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and the master. Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who? Luke. What do we know about Luke according to this? Hint, it's below the line. But according to this text, what do we know according to Colossians 4? He's not a Jew. Excellent. He's a Gentile. Right? So when someone says, I believe, all the New Testament was written in Hebrew. 
by Jews. I'm like, well, then you might want to read it first. Because according to chapter 4 of Colossians, Luke is clearly a Gentile. For what it's worth. And Demas. (laughs) Peeps. People. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Memphis and the church that is in his house. Apparently there's a church in Laodicea and Memphis. By the way, that church has got a letter coming still, doesn't it? What church has come what letter is coming to Laodicea? Revelation. Remember how there were seven churches listed that the that letter was going to? One of them was in Laodicea. By the way, was the last of them. Do you remember what their condition was? They were lukewarm. Interesting, by the way. Do you remember what? Remember there was the the um, spa, the bank, and the mall, if you will. Which one was Laodicea? That was Hierapolis. That was the hot springs. They were the bank. Yes. And don't miss this. Hierapolis was a place where they had hot springs, I remind you. But a bank's got... What, what does a bank have to make it a bank? Money. It's got money. Which means that, like, let's... Matter of fact, it was so rich that when an earthquake took down the whole city and Rome offered to rebuild it, they said, nope, we'll do it ourselves. A little cheeky. And they wanted, they were tired of people heading to the spa over there and they thought, we've got money, let's ship it over here. So they were getting, they were, they were taking spring water, first of all, fresh spring water, and they were piping it over. And they were also piping over the sulfur, hot sulfur water. Now, you know what hot sulfur smells like? Bed. Yeah, like rotten eggs. What did you say, like your bath? Bed. Oh, like bed? <laughs> Like bad, 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 bad. Oh, bad. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said like your bed. And I'm like, Hugo. Well, I guess you're... <laughs> actually, that's probably more to the... If, yeah, actually, we all go, yeah, okay, okay, I kind of get that. Yeah, so imagine these pipes are coming in, and somewhere down the line in all of it, these pipes are getting messed up, and you're expecting fresh spring water, and you stick your cup out, and instead you scoop out. Well, there's a problem when hot springs make their way underneath a river. You know what happens? They cool off. So you know what you have by the time it makes its way to Laodicea? Well, you don't have hot sulfur water anymore for your skin. Especially when you think it's going to be fresh spring water. You take a cup, you fill it, and you take a sip of it, and it's lukewarm. What do you do with it? You spit it out of your mouth because it tastes like rotten eggs. And Jesus said the same thing about the Laodiceans. Interesting thought. So, well, keep that in mind. Okay, last few verses. Verse 16. Oh, it's me. (laughs) I say so much. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea, which apparently we don't have. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. What does that mean? Do what God's called you to do. So who do you think Archippus is? Or do you think who he should be? The leader. Maybe so. That's the guess. Maybe he's supposed to be the pastor of this church right now. 
clearly Epaphras isn't because Epaphras has been telling Paul. Epaphras is like, oh, he loves you guys. He's zealous for you. There's no doubt about it, but he's not there. He wouldn't have to tell him that. But imagine, if you will, and this is really frustrating, can I say, because our mission is really simple. Preach the gospel to the lost so they could come to Jesus. Equip, that's preach, teach. Go through the word like this so we can equip. Isn't that what we read in Ephesians? That my calling as a pastor is to equip you for the ministry. And that part, you know, I can do that. I mean, that's what I'm called to do. I'm going to do that. But then to see people raised up. The problem with that often, and the frustrating thing, is when someone has fantastic calling, and they may even have faith that's hard to tell in regards to that. They just don't have the motivation. And you're like, and I can, you know, the fun thing is I can see Paul going, well, yeah, tell this guy, get off your butt and do what God's called you to. Now, it's different. He's going to approach Timothy different because Timothy's freaked out. Timothy's afraid. And he's like, let me remind you why you shouldn't be afraid, Timothy. Timothy is like, I mean, in Timothy's case, Paul's got a bit of compassion. He's like, I understand you have to battle fear. But Archippus, he's just like, you, will you just tell the guy to get off his butt and do what God's called him to? And that's, the, that's so hard when you watch people that are so gifted sometimes. And you're like, man, God just... Light a fire under that guy or light a fire under that gal because, man, the world could be so changed if they were just out there. Well, finally, verse 18. This lutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my shame. Grace be with you. Amen. Amen. Here's my challenge now. I would like to pray as we close this that we would demonstrate our faith in Jesus in the way that we love one another and then we do all things two different ways. Well, together. What are those two things we should do all things? How? Wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. With our, put our heart in it. And what else? In the, in the name of Jesus. Excellent. That's my heart's desire for us tonight. All right. And can you imagine? I mean, if we, I mean, if we really said, all right, I'm going to commit to that. Sunday, I'm going to commit to that. Even just Sunday, I'm going to commit to that. Wholehearted everything. I, can you imagine how excited we would be? Like, oh man, that would be cool. I mean, no matter what it is. And again, it isn't like I can gauge wholeheartedness, can I? You know, let's face it. You could spaz out and do it no-heartedly. Or you could be completely quiet and be wholehearted. But there's a difference when someone looks at you when they know they're giving your all. I know there's a coach. And it's like, well, you look at them and they're just like, they're spending themselves because there's something exciting inside of you when you know you're giving it. Well, that's what I want to pray for us, okay? Lord, we recognize we are in the land of constant temptation and diversion. Anything, Lord, can be in some way readily available to us to our own destruction. It seems obvious here. And there's so many people in their booths calling out that are trying to divert us from keeping our eyes on the price to, in essence, spoil us, Lord, to divert us, to steer us away from and take us away, Lord, from the prize. And we don't want to be cheated like that. And we recognize, Lord, that can happen through philosophies. That can happen through esoteric experiences that in essence are kind of vain. They're empty, but they're, del- and they're empty delusions. That can happen, Lord. We recognize from traditions. We recognize that, Lord, there are so many different ways that these kind of things can happen. It can happen by the things of this world. Ways and patterns that seem to make sense, but that doesn't mean we act in faith by following you. 
And in the end of it all, the challenge is, Jesus, that you're everything you say you are and that you're all that we need. Tonight, let us resolve that. May we get our focus simply and wholly on you. And in doing that, I pray that we would demonstrate our trust in you. That you are everything you say you are. And you're all that we need. And we demonstrate that faith by loving one another as we should. And as we love one another as we should, let us set our minds on things above. Seek the things which are above. Lord Jesus, you are at the right hand of the Father. And set our minds on things above because we died and our lives are hidden with you. And when you, Jesus, who are our life, appear, will appear with you in glory. So therefore, may we let your peace rule our hearts. May we let your word dwell richly in us. And may we let our speech be full of grace, seasoned with salt. And Lord, my prayer is that we would do all things unto you, in your name, Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through you. And that we put our heart in it. Forgive us, Lord, for where we offer you things that have little to no heart in it. And I pray specifically for this Sunday that we will come in your name and go wholehearted and watch you do just awesome things. So we commit ourselves to and we thank you so much for this beautiful letter. In Jesus' name.